It was actually lovely having communicators today. We're talking in this series about glass ceilings, about grief. And everyone who's been through any form of grief, we know that there's so much brokenness. But we also know that um, that wine is almost a symbol of new life as well. And eventually, eventually, at the other end, we do experience new life. It may look and feel different, but it's there. Um, I haven't enjoyed this week reliving experiences we've had in the past, um, so bear with me if I struggle a bit at times. Um, Thursday 27th of February 1992 was three weeks into Term 1, and this is nearly 29 years ago, I know, because our baby our daughter, who was a baby then, is 29 tomorrow. Um, I took the kids to school. Jared had been at school for about three weeks and Kirsten was a big year three. And um, had little baby, 10-week-old ten, ten Janelle in my arms and we walked Jared into school because he's still getting used to what to do. He kissed his little sister goodbye and raced off um, into his classroom. And can we have that photo, do you think, Joel? He's got a photo there. Yeah. This is... Um, Jared is, look, looks like he's an angel there because he was behaving himself. He'd just been told off. And we took ages getting Janelle dressed in a cute little dress and then she fell asleep. So that's the only photo we have of our three lovely children. Anyway, we got a phone call from school at lunchtime. And I'm, I'm a teacher, so I know that, you know, if a kid gets injured, you get a phone call. So... I thought, oh, you know, he's just been an idiot like he usually is. You know, Jared's a bit of a hangman and was always into, into mischief. And so we went down to school and there was this little boy in a coma. It's supposed to get easier, isn't it? Um, <laughs> and I remember we followed the ambulance into Wellington Hospital and I still struggle with ambulances. Um, we sat in the hospital waiting room while they said, look, he's, what's happened is he fell off the bars at school, jolted his spine, and it's given him sort of, this is layman's terms, a blood clot on the brain, and we just need to release that and release the pressure, and it's pretty straightforward, and, um, yeah, we can, we can do this. And they had the top surgeon, and so we were quite, quite comfortable with that. We thought we were in the best hands possible. So we sat in the waiting room and had a coffee and did all those things that you do while you're trying to kill time and not think the worst. And then they asked us to go into a private room. And we thought, oh. I remember the school principal was there with us and we ended up praying for her because she was more of a mess than us at the time. And I can remember the song running through my head was, The Battle Belongs to the Lord. Remember that one? The battle belongs to the Lord. Yeah, that one. And I was going over and over in my head, and I do feel like Evander Holyfield desecrated it when he had it going into his to his fights, but that's beside the point. <laughs> um, so, And I was really believing the battle belongs to the Lord. I was believing we were going to get an outcome like you wouldn't believe. Finally, the surgeon came in and spoke to us, and, said, and he was an absolute mess. And it was the first or second child he'd ever lost in surgery. Can't remember, one or the other. And, um, yeah, and so we were left 
I'm in a nightmare. I'm in a nightmare. I'm going to wake up soon. Um, family all arrived at the hospital and the elders, because um, she was an elder at that stage. And I was just talking to Natalie before. She said she remembers coming off the, off the lift and finding out that he'd just passed away. And we just sat in this room with this little body. And I was holding his hand and it just got colder and colder. Finally, we decided we'd better actually make tracks and go home. And I walked outside, and the sun was still shining. I mean, how could it? You know, our life was completely devastated, and the world was going on, and the sun was still shining. We had Jared at home with us because it was such a shock. We needed time to adjust and get used to it. Um... And we're just saying before with Dean, she's saying, I remember we came up and a lot of the, the Māori folk from church came up as, as, a, as our Christian whānau and we had a, our own little tangi up in the lounge. And lots of people in and out and lots of people just, they said, I don't know what to say. And I said, thank you. That's all you need to say. The ones who tried to say more were the ones that I, yeah. Um, grief is incredibly tiring. It's incredibly disorientating. You feel like you're going batty almost on a daily basis. It's incredibly unpredictable. And everyone takes a different journey through grief. I can remember at one stage a couple of friends a few months down the track came and sat me down and they felt that I wasn't journeying it the right way. And it was incredibly hurtful when I was trying to be gracious with them and just, you know, and um, in fact, a lot of energy went on being gracious to people who said dumb stuff. Um, People often, if someone's passed away, especially a child, they say, oh, do you want to go and talk to them? And I'm thinking, no, because I don't know what to say. Their journey is different from ours. Their personality is different from ours. The place they are in their journey is different from where I was ever at, you know, and... um, So just, yeah, factor that in when you're talking to people. And the best you can say is, give them a hug, and I don't know what to say. At least that's honest. The temptation was to make a little nest in my bed and just stay there. But I had a 10-week-old baby, and I had a 7-year-old who, every photo we had of Kirsten and Jared, she had her arm around him. And she was two and a half when he was born. So every living memory she had... He was part of it. And so I had to try and fill that gap as well. So I was playing lots of games, reading lots of books and doing lots of things just to keep her occupied. And it's amazing the impact. Kirsten's now, what, 35, 36? I never remember. And with children of her own. And um, she, she still has vivid memories of Jared. I don't know that we also understand, although we all have a different journey, that the ripple effect that a loss like that has. Um, and in the generations, I mean, it's in the natural order, you expect your parents to die, and subconsciously, you know it's going to happen, and so you're ready to, to handle that when it does happen. Excuse me, I knew I'd be a mess. But with, when your grandchild or great-grandchild passes away before you, that's a big adjustment. And I know that we still live next door to Hudson and Joan, and every day Jared used to go over and take Granddad for a walk. And this was Joan's stepdad. And um, he would get his trousers over his pyjama pants. This is Granddad, not Jared. 
And they'd go for their walk. They'd take their big sticks and they'd walk down Chatsworth Road and I wasn't quite sure who was taking who across the road and they'd shoot the cars as they went past with their sticks. And dear old great-granddad never got up and went for another walk, you know. And, um, yeah, the impact, we, we were so focused on our loss, it was very hard to understand the ripple effect it had on others. A lot of our friends found it very hard because they felt incredibly vulnerable about their children because they knew that it could just be a freak accident. No one was to blame. It was just a freak, out-of-this-imagination accident. There's a few interesting things happened. I remember, um, yeah, just you wonder where God is in the middle of it, you know? And um, Stephen Bill Booth was a family friend, and he'd written a song for the funeral, which he sang. And he was then touring in the States a few months later, and shared the song and just said it was written for the death of a, of a friend's child. And um, this lady came up to him, this is in the States, you know, thousands and thousands of miles away, and said, when was that? She said, I'm an intercessory prayer. She said, God spoke to me about a five-year-old that had just died. And so I rang the school because I've got a five-year-old, you know, and rang all my friends to make sure their kids were all right. And so she said, I prayed for whoever that family was. And you sit there and you think, you know how someone gives you a word, you think, gosh, isn't God amazing that he actually cares enough to get someone else to think those thoughts and pass them on to me? And you sort of feel about this small. Yeah. Um, things actually got worse after that. We had a whole lot of other losses, but Trevor may or may not go into that. It gets a bit gruesome. Um, but I think what's interesting is prior to that, I had this thing about banking truth in my life. And I had these, I found them, these little cards on the, on the kitchen bench with verses that I felt were, gonna, were important to me. He will keep in perfect peace all those who trust him, whose thoughts turn off unto the Lord. That's Isaiah 28 from the message. Oh, what a wonderful God we have. How great are his wisdom and knowledge and riches. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his methods. For everything comes from God alone. Everything lives by his power and everything is for his glory. To him be glory forevermore. I had one about setting your face like flint to do his will, which is a bit harsh, but sometimes, some days, that's all I had to do. The Lord's promise is sure. He speaks no careless word. All he says is purest truth, like silver, seven times refined. Um, Don't be impatient. Wait for the Lord. He will come and save you. Be brave, stout-hearted, and courageous. Yes, wait, and he will help you. And um, those, I didn't know why I had to bank them in my spirit. I didn't know why, and then I found out. Um, got time for a little story? Yeah. I had met a friend through Kindy. You know, he's the Kindy mums. It's a good chance to connect, and they'd come around and have coffee. And one of them, Lisa, saw these little cards um, on my bench and asked about them. And then after Jared passed away, they moved up to Havelock North. And um, the kids went to Havelock North School, and... Hayden was Jared's little mate, but his older brother met this kid called Steve at school. And so Steve asked 
this kid home and they got quite close and Steve, Steve's mum and Hayden's mum got together and just talking about things and talking about life and one day Lisa started talking about her, her friend in Wellington, her Christian friend who had lost a son but she had these verses on the, on the bench and um, long story short Lisa started her, her spiritual journey with Steve's mum started her on her journey and um, and when we met our prospective son-in-law, he said, hey, we know someone who knows you. And that was Lisa. Yeah. And um, so the next time I saw Lisa was at the barbecue we had the night before Kirsten and Steve got married. So it was really quite a special story. So you don't know that you're just trying to keep on going, but sometimes things have a ripple effect you're not aware of, you know. The other thing that I came up with when I was standing at the kitchen bench one day and life was just too hard and I felt I had no control over anything. Things were happening in the economic world and the business world and the construction industry that I had no control over. I had no control over what happened to Jared. The only thing I figured, and it sounds so basic, that I had control over was the way I handled it. The way I approached every day so I could make a positive choice every day about what I did. The other thing that was a major struggle for me was I having to reconstruct my whole theology. Um, God blows apart your faith sometimes, eh? And you're left with thinking, what have I got next? What have I got left? We weren't bad people. You know, we tried to do good things. We... You know, we tried to do all the right stuff and we tried to be really good Christian people and this is what happened. And um, so it strips you back to the basics of what your faith actually is all about and all the peripheral stuff just gets discarded. I was left with God is there. God is good because the word says it. And I do still trust his word. And I think I trust him, but I'm not always sure. And that's what I got stripped back to. And it was really, yeah, it was really hard when the Lord had been part of my life forever, you know. Um, but in the middle of it, God was actually quite gentle with us. I mean, it could have been a drunk driver that killed our son. And then we could have be angry, angry and bitter and twisted about it. It was an accident, you know. And um, all the way through, we look, I looked at it at one stage when I was reading verses about how God is gentle with us. And I thought, what? Yeah, he had been, you know. This kid knew he was loved. And I know I remember Trevor saying at the funeral, we had no regrets with him. We'd done the best we felt we could with him, you know. Um, and the other key, I've just got one more point. Disappointment is part of life. We're all going to be disappointed at times, you know. And that's just the way it is. But if, and I can remember when we started this whole journey of losing absolutely everything after we'd lost Jared as well. Um, I don't want to be one of those bitter and twisted old people, those gnarly old you. And how do I, Lord, how do I not get there? So I think this is the key. This is what he sort of lodged in my head anyway. Disappointment is normal, and I think we have to acknowledge it. You know, I'm disappointed that we got treated that way. I'm disappointed that that deal fell through. I'm really disappointed at the way that they treated me. I'm disappointed that that relationship has broken down. 
and acknowledge that disappointment. Otherwise, if you don't, that develops into resentment. And then resentment, if it's not dealt with, can develop into bitterness. And the one that's impacted most by bitterness is you. You live with it every day. The other people just have a passing acquaintance with it when they meet you. Um, yeah, so that's all I've got to say. Trevor tied all it together. Um, but I will never know why Jared died. I don't, I will never understand why it happened to us. Um, I'll never understand why it still hurts. His grief is supposed to ease off. But I know that in time, in eternity, in the forever part of my life, I may have some, some answers. Wow. Do we have time to do it for any more, or should we? Um... Honey, that was... Um... That was awesome. Through it all, I've had a, um, Viv is a wonderful lady. She's not only a good speaker, but she's a wonderful, a wonderful wife. And she mentioned that when Jared died, she had a 10-week-old baby and a five-year-old, no, seven and eight-year-old daughter. And she had a husband who had a lot of stuff going on as well. You know, that was the other thing. And this morning, I don't really know how trans, kind of think about how, how much I say and how transparent I am. But I guess metaphorically speaking, metaphorically, I'll take my clothes off and you'll see everything. So here we go. Prior to, prior to, Viv, uh, prior to Jared dying, and we'll, we'll kind of move around this a wee bit, we were... We had some problems in our in our business. It was a rough time in the industry. A few years after the share market crash, and we had made a couple of unwise decisions. But we'd also been, um, I guess, um, what would be the word? We'd been led along by a financial advisor who had some difficult problems himself in business, and was using other people's money to try and sort his problems out. So we had some other issues as well. And after Jared died, uh, this particular person suggested that he look after some of our, well, most of our financial affairs because we never had the energy or the resources to do that. And so he took over a lot of our, a lot of our business. And after Jared's death, um, because we kind of were short of funds for what we were doing in our business, um, Dad Hudson, as many of you, who many of you will know, said, well, okay, well, I know you're struggling, so perhaps you could use a mortgage on his property, which was to the value of probably about 15% of the value of the home, to tide us over for a certain amount of time. And that was okay, but and that was much appreciated, of course, but when Dad's house was sold, eventually it was found that the mortgage that had been placed on the house was to the full value of the home. And so Dad lost his home as well. And then because of some dealings with the family trust, we um, both, Dad and my brother-in-law, Paul, who some of you will know, 
were made bankrupt. And so the three of us, well, I was made bankrupt first and Paul and uh, Hudson later on. And one of the most difficult times of my life was when I had to go to the High Court in Wellington with Dad and my brother-in-law and they were judged bankrupt. But because of the because of the, the, the way that the whole thing occurred with our financial advisor and the fact that we weren't went to blame. We, we all got discharged in a fairly quick amount of time and um, we were released from, from, from bankruptcy. Um, they were very, very dark times, very difficult. And, you know, I, re I remember just, just not knowing, I mean, Viv had, had to handle a lot of stuff and I was handling stuff that she wasn't aware of as well. And I remember... I remember going to the place I I lived in as a as a kid in in, in Cecil Street, you know, and you know, Cecil Street is Charles Street, Cecil Street. Dad built a lot of the houses there, and walking from there's this late one night walking from there to the school I used to go to at Oxford Crescent, and I was just kind of reliving my past, and and as a five year old, and I went and I sat in the seat that I used to sit at having lunch as a five-year-old kid. And here I was, I was, I was reliving the fact that I just wanted to live it all again, you know? I mean, I'd, I'd, lost, I'd lost my future, my, my son, and I'd lost a lot of my past because of what happened to my, my, my parents and them losing everything as well. It was incredibly dark. It was a dark time. And I remember reading in the North and South magazine that if you're having a bad day, take a shower because that's telling your body that you're starting the day again. But I remember thinking, I'm going to spend the whole day in the shower. <laughs> telling the body, start again, you're starting again, you know. And I was, it was a crisis with, with, with Jared and with everything. It was, it was a crisis. And I mean... And uh, some Christians historically, and I think in the 15th century, the, the phrase was uh, used that it was that it was called the dark night of the soul. That God was just God was silent. You prayed to Him, and like Viv, I I had a had a reservoir within me as well that I was able to draw upon because I knew that times when I was going to be thirsty spiritually, it was there. But in this time, it was. God just was not forthcoming. And it seemed as if God wasn't even listening. And that's, it's, it's a crisis in a person's life when, when they just, the journey of the union with God is just not happening. The Psalms help us, and I'm going to try and pull all this together. That's, that's where I was, Okay. The Psalms help us in this because the Psalms, as we know, are, are an expression of someone's, uh, of, the, of the kind of the, the intimate journey of someone's walk with God. And they're expressed in poems um, and in song. But of the 150 Psalms, there are over 40 that what we call are Psalms of lament or protest or, you know, complaint to God. And, you know, God, why have you done this? What, you've messed up. Why, why am I feeling like this? I mean, you've, and the, the songs we were complaining, psalms of complaint to God. 
And Psalm 22 is a really good example of that. And it goes about 18 or 19 verses of complaining to God before the actual, any, any request for help comes in. The first part is all about complaint. In fact, the first verse is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The verse that Jesus quoted when he was on the cross. God, why have you let me down? Why are you not there when I need you most? And what I discovered about reading the Psalms of Lament is that, you know, when we when we are in prob- when we're in crisis, when we're in real deep trouble, what we do is we say we tell God what we need. Say, God, we need this. And you know, God, and we say, God, God knows how I feel, and we start telling God what we need, what we want. But the Psalms teach us that. What we need to do is, and what, what God needs to hear is what we're really feeling inside. He knows what we need. He knows the release we need. He knows the provision that we need, the help that we need. What he really wants to hear is our gut feel. How am I really feeling in this? And the Psalms helped me at that time as well. Through this, I did, through this journey, I, what I did discover was that faith has more to do with prayers that are unanswered than prayers that are answered. Now, I know what prayers, I know what answered prayers like. I mean, we had a wonderful time last Sunday when people shared about um, their answers to prayer. Wonderful. And I know that God can step in in the miraculous, brings his, the world of wonder from his world into our world, and we see miracles happen. I know that. But what I discovered is that real faith the hanging your life together kind of faith does happen when God doesn't answer prayer. When you're left with prayers that are unanswered and you're still asking questions. Because prayer, as we know, in its essence, is not a button that we push. We don't ask God to dispense something and wait for it to be dispensed. It's not a button to be pushed. But prayer in faith is a relationship to be pursued, all right? Can we just, um, if you've got your Bibles, can you look at a verse in James chapter 1 for a tick? Just like to look at this. James chapter 1 and verse 2, it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Another Another translation says, Consider it a sheer gift or an opportunity when tests and challenges come at you from all sides, you know that under pressure your faith is forced into the open and shows its true colours. And when, when you're in crisis, when you're, when you're really struggling with, with life and with God, your true belief in God comes to the surface. And that's what Viv said. I mean, it's exposed. What, 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 your tr- what the true colours of your faith are really seen. We've heard the saying that why do bad things happen to good people, haven't we? And, of course, the reverse of that is why do good things happen to bad people? But if we're honest, as Christians, what we, what we say when we, or what we think when times are really difficult, is why do bad things happen to God's people? How come God is not consistent? 
And there's a contradiction about being a, a child of God and bad things happening, isn't it? That's what we think, you know? And we, we think, well, you know, I've given my life to God and I go to church and I, I give every week and, and, you know, I help with a home group and I do this and I do that. At least and I, I can be, expect that God's going to treat me right. You know, at least he's going to treat me better than, than the guy down the road who abuses his wife and swears at the kids and kicks the dog. You know, at, at least God's going to treat me better than that. And so there's this, we think God's inconsistent at times. But God doesn't, God doesn't wrap us in cotton wool and protect us from the, the pain and the suffering that, that permeates this world. And he doesn't put us in a, in a glass box as a display of this person who is mine, who is no longer subject to any pain and suffering. Not at all. In fact, God sometimes uses us, those of us who have been through difficult times, as an expression of his faithfulness, of his goodness and his provision and his love, his mercy and his grace. So what about the true colours of our faith that are exposed? Sometimes when, if we kind of feel that God is being unfair or he's, he's not being consistent or he's, we just don't understand what he's doing, sometimes our, our faith can, can kind of lead us to, well, we, we abandon our faith. We kind of, we can walk away because God doesn't stack up to what we think he should be. Or maybe... If we don't abandon our faith, uh, we can live a life that is very kind of like a shadow is being cast over us. And we live, as Viv says, with bitterness and resentment over our whole life. And I guess, I know, I know people like that, maybe you do too, where their understanding of God has got to the point, or has come to the point with the crisis in their life of of kind of being an unreal expectation of how God is going to treat them. And life has lived in a shadow. A word that we don't often use in church, but a word that we should use more often is the word theology. It means, basically it means a study and an understanding of God and who he is, his ways. Now I'm not, I, I think we should all be theologians. I really do. Now, I'm, I'm not just talking about the academics, or there's only, one, is, is, um, it's only one, there's only one of them here at the moment, but I'm talking about we should all be on a journey where we're, understand, we're trying to understand, we're seeking to understand and know more about the one who loves us. And I want to suggest that there is nothing like pain and suffering that drives you to understand more about God and his ways. And I, I think the book of, if you look at the book of Job, Job was a theologian. You know, he, he um, as we know, the, the, the Bible talks about Job as being one who was blameless, who feared God, he was, there was no one like him in the East. He was a very wealthy man, the wealthiest man of the time. Heaps of stock and, and sheep and you know, um, donkeys and camels and whatever else they had in those days. Wonderful family, very wealthy man. Satan comes to God one day and says, you know, 
this guy Job, he only really, he only really worships you. He, only, he is only reverent towards you, fears you because of the good life you've given him. If you let me touch his life, he will no longer love you and serve you and fear you. And so Job, Job's life is allowed to be touched by Satan. And, and of course, all his, as we know, his stock was killed. He lost everything. He lost 10 children. And yet, and so Job goes on this journey with the interaction with his so-called friends and his wife and then talking with God and he goes through about 40 chapters of discovering more about God. And then in chapter 42, he says, uh, when he'd been through all this and through all his suffering, we find that he radically shifted in his understanding of God. He said, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. The message says this, I admit I once lived by rumours of you. Now I have it firsthand from our own eyes and ears. So Job is not so much a book on pain and suffering, but of understanding God, his sovereignty, his goodness and his provision. And God, of course, restored everything that Job had lost. Through the journey, do I understand God more and of his ways? Of course I do. Of course I do. And does the pain go away? No, it doesn't. As Viv expressed before, the pain does not go away. Do I still cry? I cry more than I've ever cried before. It doesn't go away. The pain doesn't go away, but the joy returns. And the joy and the sense of happiness and contentment is incredibly deep. And it's something that nothing, nothing could ever shift. And I have a, a deep, deep happiness, if you can call it that, a sense of real blessing and contentment in my life that I actually question I would have if I hadn't been through the crisis of the dark night of the soul. You understand what I'm saying? Do I have all the answers? Do I, do I still have questions? Of course I have questions. But I have questions about lots of things, like, the orbiting of the planets, the, the inner workings of a woman's mind, you know. <laughs> the, I have questions about pain and suffering as well. But if you take God out of the equation, does that answer the questions? Of course it doesn't. If you take God out of the equation, that does, it, does that make the suffering any less? No, it doesn't, does it? I guess we've also heard the saying that goes something like, if God, if God is all-powerful and all-loving, how come he allows pain and suffering? Haven't we heard that? And some people use that as an argument or a reason not to believe in God. But can I throw a couple of others in there as well, a couple of other characteristics about God. God is also all-knowing and he's eternal. He knows it all. He, the, he is the Mr. Know-it-all. There is nothing he doesn't know, but he lives also outside of time and space. He's eternal. He sees things that you and I do not see. There's a really cool verse in 1 Corinthians 4, and if I can just read that to you. It's a, it's a, this is a crazy verse. It really is. I mean, you try and get your kidneys around this one. It is not easy. It is not easy. He says, so we fix our eyes on, not on what is seen. 
So we fix our eyes not on what is seen. You try and do that. How can you, fi- how can you look at something you can't see? I mean, those of us who are losing our eyesight, we're struggling to see things that can be seen. <laughs> and here we say, you fix your eyes on what cannot be seen. In fact, the message says, there's far more here than meets the eye. Okay? The things we see are here today, but gone tomorrow. But the things we cannot see now will last forever. For what is seen, and that's a really good study to do in, in the Bible in terms of what is temporary and what is eternal. And it's a, it's, look, that passage has implications for every part of our Christian walk, what we spend our resources on, what we spend our time doing, how we consume, what we dream about, what our aspirations are. Fix your eyes on things that are not seen <clears throat> rather than things that are seen. That is a world that, that, a world that he invites us into. A world that we were made to live in. I think a few weeks ago we talked about the world of an ambassador living in one world but actually belonging to another world. And God here in what he is, is the all-powerful, the all-loving, the all-knowing, but the also eternal God is inviting us to live in a world where he knows and he also sees things that we do not see. And so when we go through pain and when we go through suffering in the darkest times of life, he sees what we don't see. He builds what we cannot build. And he knows what we don't know and he invites us to live in this eternal world that is beyond what we are experiencing right now. Second, um, just another passage there from the book of Ecclesiastes. It says that eternity is written in the heart of man. In other words, that we, we know deep inside that we're made, that we're built for life that's far beyond what we experience right now. And that means that, that all the good things that we think will satisfy won't satisfy us, won't gratify us. And it also means that the crisis that we face, the crises that we face, the difficult, painful times of life, will not ultimately define us and will not constrain us as well. The series that we've been doing is about breaking glass ceilings. There's been times in 28 years ago with Aviv and I when it appeared as sort of seemed as though the glass ceiling was breaking and, and um, we were just being cut to pieces and left to shreds and on the floor there were the pieces. I don't know, maybe you've felt like that, where the glass ceiling hasn't broke. Well, you didn't break it, but it broke over you. <laughs> you know, I want to suggest that, that with God's infused life within us, he gives us the ability, the power and the strength to break the glass ceilings. How is that possible? Well, Gene Hamilton led us before and 
in communion and just remembering what Jesus has done. And of course, in three weeks' time, we celebrate Christmas, the coming of Jesus, who ultimately, after 30 plus years on this planet, was murdered, put on a cross. His body was broken so that ultimately we could experience the resurrection life that he experienced three days after his death. Isn't that right? It's a good thing. Can I just, if, if any of you um, want to chat this over or want prayer or want to talk it further with either Dean and Dino or Gina or any of the elders or even Viv and myself, if anything specific about, about the crisis of a kind of a, a dark night of the soul or the loss of a child or any grief, whatever. If you want to talk that through further or like prayer, just come and have a chat with us. We'd love to talk with you. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a good God. And even in the darkest of times and the when there doesn't seem to be any light, we thank you that you are there. We thank you that your word promises that experience of life and what we've seen of you elsewhere. We know, we know that we know that you're a good God who cares and who loves. And we thank you that you lift us up. You lift us up high enough to break through the ceilings that would constrain us and and stop us from being who we've created to be. We thank you, Lord, for the journeys that you've placed all of us on. We pray that as you lead us, as you guide us, as you direct us, as you put us through and allow us to go through whatever stuff we go through in life, that we'd find you to be real, that we would journey with you and that we would discover your life, your power, your grace and your mercy in our lives in a way that would bring radical change, not just to us, but for those around us as well. We thank you, Lord, for all you've done. Amen.